This is Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. I am joined today with Dr. John Lennox. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lennox. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be back in Canada, even though it's only in virtual reality. It is virtual. I was reminding Dr. Lennox that the last time uh, he was here in Langley, actually, and Dr. Lennox, myself, and Andy Bannister were participating in a speaking engagement together. You were the keynote speaker, and it was great having you here. We look forward to having you back in Canada one day soon. For those of you who don't know Dr. Lennox, he is the Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at the University of Oxford. He's a fellow in mathematics and the philosophy of science and a pastoral advisor at Green Templeton College, Oxford. He's the author of numerous books, which I have thoroughly enjoyed in the area of science and big questions, as well as the intellectual defense of Christianity. He has lectured extensively around the world and has debated many public figure, intellectual and cultural commentators that include Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Peter Singer. Those have been some fantastic uh, debates. <laughs> I would highly encourage anyone who hasn't uh, seen those on, on YouTube to check them out. You are an incredible thinker. We're so thankful to have you on the show. Uh, you have a new book that just came out, and as soon as I saw it, uh, I knew that we needed to talk. And in fact, we have the same publisher. I have a book that recently came out uh, with Zondervan, and they told me about your book. So I knew about it about a year before it came out. And the book here is called 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this subject. As you know, part of my doctoral work with Michael Polanyi is in the area of artificial intelligence. A lot of people don't know this, by the way, but Polanyi taught at Manchester University at the same time that Alan Turing did, and that those two interacted quite heavily in his early days, Turing's early days, as he was thinking through the implications of what it would look like for a machine to think. Now, one of the things I find is kind of interesting about this is Turing, when he wrote a lot of his papers and his ideas, he thought by the year 2000 that we would have a machine that could pass the imitation game. In other words, that could interact with you so convincingly you wouldn't know that you were interacting with a machine. Clearly, we are not there yet. But a lot of people think we're close, don't they, Dr. Lennox? Oh, they do. They do indeed. I didn't know that about Turing. And certainly, let me say, I look forward to reading your book well, when, when it comes out. Uh, the problem in this topic is that there's a mixture of things. There's the kind of artificial intelligence that actually works, which we often call narrow AI. And then there's the much more speculative side in terms of thinking machines, in terms of super intelligences, uh, uploading our brains and all that kind of stuff. And it always amuses me that many people uh, say, well, it's about 30 years away. It's always about 30 years away. <laughs> and, it certainly hasn't happened yet, but doubtless we've made huge advances in, well, 
artificial intelligence is just that. It's artificial. It's not real intelligence. It's a simulation using a machine to do things that normally require human intelligence to do. And we've been very successful, provided we've kept to doing very few things, usually only one thing. But artificial general intelligence, which is the concept that we'll eventually be able to simulate, if not replicate, everything a human being can do, that seems very distant still. Yes. And it's interesting because as we think about this, there are all sorts of implications. As you and I are well aware, technology can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And and I was reading in the news today on BBC, in fact, that we've made some real improvements with regards to COVID-19. And it looks like we have some vaccines that are showing themselves to be 90% effective. Now, you being out in Oxford and how much research has been going on there with regards to COVID-19, I'm sure that there's a buzz right now with regards to this. Oh, there's a huge buzz. I I was watching the BBC News just before I came on with you, and there's huge excitement uh, with uh, the idea that this vaccine that has been discovered is probably 90% effective. And one of the very interesting things here is I understand that the search for vaccine has been aided by artificial intelligence. And your emphasis there is important. There are some extremely good things that have been done. I always think particularly of of the work of Rosalind Picard at MIT, where she has developed a whole branch of computing called affective computing, and they use artificial intelligence, facial recognition techniques to help predict uh, various kinds of uh, reactions in uh, autistic children. And they can avoid these episodes by recognizing them beforehand. And I go further and encourage particularly young Christians that if they're scientifically inclined, this is a very good field to be in, not only to do positive scientific research, but to get into the detail of the ethical side, because as you said, there's a huge downside in many applications of AI, and we need people on the inside who are Christian believers and who can help not only articulate the ethical problems, but help shape the ethical norms to which the machinery should, we hope, conform. Well, this is one of the things that I... I loved about your book is your book is such a great introduction for people who aren't aware of the subject, who haven't delved very deeply into it. It, it gives you a, a quick overview uh, landscape of what's going on, particularly from a Christian perspective. And I've been wanting to ask you this question as we get into this. What got you interested in the topic of AI to be honest, when I saw the book was coming out, I wasn't surprised because you you one of the things that always amazes me over, about you over the years is just to see your breadth of engagement as a Christian. But I'm curious, what, what got you interested and what really raised some alarm bells that you think, hey, listen, Christians need to get more interested in this topic? I suspect that the first person that raised the alarm bells for me was C.S. Lewis. In his book, The Abolition of Man, written around 1940. And I think that's quite a prescient book. And he saw that if human beings ever get to the stage where they can, say, shape the definition 
of the descendants of the current human beings, that what they will in the end produce are not human beings, but artifacts. If you add to that his uh, science fiction book, That Hideous Strength, where he brilliantly describes a futuristic scenario where this sort of stuff happens, and then compounded with George Orwell's 1984. These things I was aware about a long time ago, but the final clincher came a few years ago when I was asked in the context of AI to talk about the biblical concept of what it means to be a human being. And the objective was for leading Christians in the, in the London area to investigate exactly what is meant by the statement that humans are made in the image of God. Now, when I started writing that lecture, I realized that I needed to go much further. And once I came across the book, Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, the Israeli historian, I knew I was onto something very important that Christians needed to know about. But not only that, I wanted, as I've done all my life, to put some arguments across into the secular space to say, just hold on a minute. Where is this agenda coming from? What is its significance? What does it mean for us as human beings? So it was pretty clear once I started writing that this was an important thing to do. And of course, uh, finally, uh, on the point, I needed to give an introduction because the words artificial intelligence for many people, they simply are scary words. They, they have no real idea what it's about. So I felt, look, let's take this slowly. Let's introduce it. Say what is good, what is bad, where the difficulties are, and make a distinction between uh, the AI that's working at the moment and the speculations about the future. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Abolition Man, he said, man's final conquest has proved to be the abolition of man. And for me, this was as well when the alarm bells were were going off as, as I'm reading, particularly I was reading from Michael Polanyi, who writing it about the same time as C.S. Lewis, and in fact, Polanyi quotes Abolition of Man as an important work for him that also raised the alarm bells that, hey, listen, our science and particular computer science has the potential to actually destroy us if we're not careful. And I think that this is something that Christians are definitely going to have to give thought to uh, because, you know, as you write, this issue is really coming to a head in our lifetime. And I do believe that. I think that your title, 2084, you know, I know you're playing off of Orwell's 1984, but a lot of people like Ray Kurzweil and others, and I know that there's a lot of hype and we need to cut through that, but a lot of them see that, you know, technology, it has this feeling that it's around the corner kind of thing. And we have made incredible strides with regards to what AI or machine learning is capable of doing. I mean, it, it might surprise a lot of people to know that these are not new algorithms, these algorithms actually go back to, you know, the 50s. They, a lot of them come from the 80s. But we just have the technology now to implement these and the ability to process the data to do that. 
However, there's something that's going on here that I think is important for people to appreciate. And, and I think that we could call this a, a, a new type of behaviorism and this idea that if you can create a machine that behaves like a human or we could, that behaves intellectually, then it, you know, then it is intelligent or it is human. But this, this is some really bad philosophy, I fear so, yes, because uh, what it avoids, the obvious thing that it avoids is the question of consciousness. In human beings, intelligence is linked to consciousness. And uh, you are very aware that there are various opinions here that some people say, look, consciousness, mm -hmm. we can forget about it. We don't know what it is anyway. So long as we can produce machinery that can simulate what a conscious intelligence does, well, then that's all we need to do. And for certain purposes, that is all we need to do, particularly in searching for vaccines. Human intelligence is normally needed, but we can program a recognition system in order to very rapidly work through all kinds of possibilities. And the end result is possibly a vaccine that works. So the fact that the machinery was not consciously intelligent is completely irrelevant. And uh, you know as well that there are various views of consciousness. You get Dennett who pretends it doesn't exist and you get other people who say, yes, it does exist and it's not derivable from physics and chemistry. But you run up against a brick wall if you think that we're going to create consciousness because in order to create something or to reproduce it, you've, <laughs> you do have to know what it is. <laughs> I think it's interesting in your book, you say, uh, no one would mistake a computer simulation for the weather. And I've read something interesting as well in a book on machine learning by Alpladin. He makes a, a distinction in which he points out with regards again to AI studies and, and machine learning. He says, our immediate source of inspiration is the human brain, just as birds were the source of inspiration in our early attempts to fly. Nowadays, we see birds and airplanes as two different ways of flying. We'd call them airplanes now, not artificial birds. Yeah, that's right. I, I read that too. And it's a very good point. I think it's extremely important. And again, it's simulating something of what birds do, but not everything. And, and I think this is an important aspect for people to understand that that I think AI, and this is kind of an interesting point that maybe I should just we should just define what we're talking about with the AI because I noticed that you use artificial general intelligence. I know that Cyril uh, has distinguished between weak AI and strong AI. Why did you go with AGI? Well, I know that there are variants on it, but I I felt that the, the basic difference is the narrow AI, which does one thing that normally requires human intelligence. And uh, things beyond that artificial general intelligence is defined by many people to be a system that will do almost all, if not all, of what a human being can do. And then beyond that, you get, of course, the quest for a super intelligence uh, on top of that. So that's why I did. I thought 
I read these different nuances and all the rest of it, but uh, I wasn't writing a research text. Uh, what I, and I'm not qualified to do that anyway. What I wanted to do was for thoughtful people to give them a general introduction so that they can navigate and pick up deeper topics if they so wish. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. We recently announced that a donor has pledged to match all donations made to Apologetics Canada before December 31st up to $100,000. We're excited to announce that thus far we have raised $35,000, which has been doubled to $70,000. If you appreciate this ministry and would like to support the work we do, please visit ApologeticsCanada.com to give. Both Canadian and U.S. donations are tax deductible. And now... Back to my interview with Dr. John Lennox. Now, machine learning is able to do some some incredible things, as you know, uh, particularly through uh, neural networks, such as uh, playing the game chess or the the game Go. Now, you point out in your book, which is important, this this is something that we've seen though, where AI is starting to do things that are even more impressive, things that people like Michael Polanyi would call skill knowledge or tacit knowledge, in which I actually call these tacit algorithms, because really, we these are not explicit algorithms. They're, they're doing things that are tacit in nature, such as riding a bike or diagnosing a disease. Uh, for example, I have read journals in which machine learning can identify skin cancer as an example on par with a dermatologist. I think that example is extremely important. Uh, One of the examples I give in the book is that of lung diseases. But when we investigate exactly what that is, you've got a powerful computer. You've got, let's say, a million x-ray pictures of people's lungs, and they're labeled by the best doctors in the world. And then you've got a pattern recognition algorithm that compares an X-ray picture of your lungs or mine with the million, and it spits out a diagnosis which will often be better than I'll get at my local hospital. But what is interesting about that is it does one thing, it does it well. There's a lot of intelligence involved, but it's not in the machine. It's in the programmer. It's in the doctors who label those things. It's in the design of the of the camera and all this kind of stuff. So what comes out is a diagnosis that would normally take an intelligent doctor to give you who had some mastery of X-ray, uh, understanding of X-rays. Now, now, for yourself as a mathematician, you understand then that neural networks are really fancy ways of doing statistical analysis. Now, I got to try this one on you, though, because I'm curious your thoughts, because really what I see you getting after as well is this idea that intelligence was specifying the parameters, which reminds me a lot of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, even when we look at this from a mathematical perspective, that there is the need for persons that are operating outside the, the system. And we see that even with regards to mathematics, that those mathematical systems need to have stipulations, if you will. They need to have boundaries put on what's taking place. They're not complete in and of themselves. Well, Gödel's theories and theorems are absolutely astonishing. I can remember 
when I finally understood and could prove the theorems myself, which took quite a while, they are, are works of, of towering genius, really. But they do warn us, and, and it depends how you apply them. And this is a much debated subject. But let's take Sir Roger Penrose, who's uh, just won the Nobel Prize. And in one of his earlier books, he, he argues that the human brain cannot be simulated by a computer because it can do things like Gödel's theorem, which no computer can do. And therefore, there's something that transcends. And as you say, arithmetic is incomplete. There's always a true theorem that you can't prove within any axiomatic system. And if you add that to the system, you, you just are faced with the same problem again. So there are deep mysteries that uh, within mathematics that ought to make us very humble that the intellectual structure of the universe is much more complex than you would imagine. Now, we've been seeing incredible technological advances through these, these systems. And one of the things that, you're, that your book brings up that I think is an important point, and a lot of people are probably unaware of, is that people are investing a lot of money right now, billions of dollars into this technology. We've seen MIT investing, but we've seen countries investing, countries like Russia and China, the United States. And it was interesting for me, Dr. Lennox, I spoke at Cambridge last year at a conference on artificial intelligence and the taxi driver, as he was taking me from the train station into Cambridge, was saying that Cambridge is really seeking to be, now I'm not sure, I'm curious how you're going to respond to this being at Oxford, that Cambridge is seeking to be the MIT of the UK. And really what it showed me is there's a real battle right now for AI supremacy in not just universities, but also in countries right now. Oh, that's true. But you needn't worry. I studied at Cambridge, so... (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I'm very happy for you to say that about Cambridge. I think <laughs> Oxford's not far behind. In fact, it might even be ahead. But the point is, is well taken. There's huge investment. And in one sense, that's encouraging. But the difficulty is when you ask, what is this being spent on? Research in medicine is one thing. Research in automatic weapons is another thing. And facial recognition technology is great if you use it to recognize criminals in a crowd. It's not so great if you use it to suppress a minority people, as is going on in the world today. So the greater the advance, the bigger the ethical problems. And I often think that AI is like a a knife, a really sharp knife. It can be used to do surgery or it can be used to murder. And we're in danger of doing both things simultaneously. And at the root of it, there is a feeling in some quarters that if it can be done, it should be done. And don't bother about the ethical consequences. And as you say, it's a multi-billion dollar investment. And many universities are setting up huge programs to churn out doctorates in artificial intelligence in the hope of spurring this on uh, and 
making their country the leading player. Now, in your book, you actually talk about how the UK is committed to seeing, was it a thousand PhDs? Something like that, but it's probably much more since I wrote that. So we're seeing this huge amount uh, of investment. We realize that the stakes are quite high. Your book does a great job of talking about the stakes. So we can't go into all that, but I did want to raise one of the hardest issues, I think, uh, that I have really thought a lot about because, you know, it's interesting to me, Dr. Lennox, that for a lot of issues that we've dealt with, philosophical issues, we've had a, a robust history to lean back on. But there's some aspects of AI that we don't have that robust intellectual tradition to lean back on. And we're, we're facing questions that, quite frankly, as humanity, we've never faced before that are really challenging. So I want to I try one of the hard ones on you and, and see how you've been wrestling through this. You touch on this issue of human enhancement in your book. But human enhancement seems like the frog in the kettle problem to me because we all have enhancement taking place through technology, such as I'm wearing clothes, you're wearing eyeglasses, I, we, you know, we're using computers where I got earbuds in my, you know, in my ears. But, you know, if I could just use an analogy that we've seen like already in our lifetime, this transition from eyeglasses to contact lenses to laser eye surgery, I can easily imagine a day that we pop the genome and, you know, the hood on the genome and we, we fiddle with that to fix eyesight, for example. I have a friend who has diabetes and and he has machines, literally he has machines attached to him that help regulate his insulin. I'm wondering, have you thought about this issue with regards to how far is too far? Because that seems like it's the challenge to me. We're already connected with technology, we're already enhanced, but how far is too far? Well, the first thing to say is what you have said is that I'm very grateful that I can see you clearly because of the glasses I'm wearing. I'm also grateful that my dentist has got very special high-powered glasses where he can see magnifications of my teeth and so that he can put the filling in the right place. And all that kind of thing is clearly very impressive. Now, where do we get to the frog and the kettle problem? How much is too much? That's almost an impossible question to ask. But I think it might be helpful to start at the other end. In other words, to ask ourselves, what would be unacceptable? And that's where I would come in with C.S. Lewis's observations, that if a group of scientists decide to take the germline Now, giving a person glasses or enhancing vision or any other property is not messing about with the germline, which would specify the things, whatever they are, to be born as my descendants. That seems to me to be a totally different order of magnitude. And the nearer we get to that, the more leery I would become because even on the simple utilitarian principle of watching for unforeseen consequences, there could be enormous unforeseen consequences. Now, we've had very amateurish eugenics programs in the past that have led to disaster, where, for example, in the former Soviet Union, they tried to create the perfect man. They tried to redesign and reconfigure humanity. 
But we are the first generation, really, or the one before us, who is actually within reach of being able to do that. And therefore, I think we need all kinds of ethical protocols and all the rest of it. Now, that raises a very big issue because it's relatively easy, it seems to me, to get agreement if all the participants have roughly equal power bases. Uh, and one can say to the other, well, if you do that, I'll do the other thing. The big danger comes, and this is where utilitarianism breaks down, which is another subject in its own right. If I have so much power that I don't care what you do, Hitler made the treaties in his political infancy, but once he got the power, he just tore them up. And that's the danger in the world today, where you after our own image. And I would very much fear that that will happen. Now, why I fear that is because of something else I do in this book, which is take the risk of discussing the biblical scenarios for the future. Because once I saw Harari's book, Homo Deus, and read his agenda, the two agendas for the 21st century, one to solve the problem of physical death so that although humans can die, they won't have to. And then secondly, to genetically engineer increased human happiness. I see that as very risky unless you've got very carefully built-in ethical norms to control it. And uh, it would seem from certain passages in the New Testament that this idea of humans becoming gods, transhumanism, is a very ancient idea. It was present in the ancient emperors. It was present in the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament. And now that's rearing its head again. And that's where I would be mostly concerned. I, I was going to bring that up because this idea of transhumanism, or as Harari puts it, you know, homo deus, you know, that humans become gods. And it's interesting because when you read transhumanist literature, they speak in very Christian ways, in fact, uh, one of which being this idea of intelligent design is is a, is a idea that they use. But the idea is, though, that we're the designer, we're the intelligent designer that's now taking, you know, the human evolution and we're directing it in the direction of our choosing. And in doing so, it seems that technology has really become a religion in the 21st century, where the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to the cloud. <laughs> that is exactly right. And I see parallels there, very strong parallels, that Harari's agenda, for example, is reflected in Christianity. But the very big difference is, think of Harari, we're going to solve the problem of human death by technology. I would want to say there's a completely different scenario that says you'll never do it that way. But you're too late anyway. It has already been solved and demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who proves that he has broken the death barrier. And then all these other things follow. The idea that people desperately want immortality. They're looking for it. Can we not upload our uh, brains into the cloud or onto silicon so that we're not dependent on biology anymore? But then uh, within Christianity, there's a promise 
to people who trust Christ that they will one day be raised from the dead and uh, they will live eternally in, in a glorious realm. So one of the main thrusts of my book is simply this, that if we're prepared to listen, as many people are, to the kind of scenarios that, for example, Max Tegmark of, of Princeton is putting forward about superintelligences, well, that's fine. Let's listen to them. But I would want to say, why don't we listen to a scenario that amazingly is 20 centuries old and raises some of these exact same issues, but has an answer that is credible because it's, it's founded on real evidence for the life, death, resurrection of Christ and so on. And I took a risk in doing that, but I thought it would help many Christians to see that what the Bible has to say about the future is not arbitrary at all when we see what other people are thinking at this time. No, I, I love that. For for listeners, in, in the end of Dr. Lennox's book, he directly applies what's going on to the Christian worldview, and I thought you did so brilliantly. This is an important idea as we think about a society that's trying to use technology to create a utopia, but as you begin to tease this out, you, you see that this is a dystopia that's in the making. I, I thought it was interesting, as you quote from David Pierce, this idea of the hedonistic imperative, where people are seeking to use this technology for the purpose of pleasure, as though this is the chief end of man. And as I was reading your book, I, I just couldn't help but think, to bring up C.S. Lewis yet again in a different book, though, The Great Divorce, you can't help but feel that with this technology, that it's a different way of trying to divorce ourselves from God as we try to become our own gods and divorce ourselves from one another as we use each other as just objects to our own pleasure. And in doing so, we've, we create a hell on earth in which we think that we're going to create this utopia, but, it, but in fact, we've just created a narcissistic hell in which we've just turned in on ourselves. And if anything, it's quite terrifying to think that somebody would want to live forever like that. No, oh, it's utterly terrifying. And I always think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn asking the question, why did 100 million of his fellow countrymen in Russia perish? And he said, because we've forgotten God. And any attempt to build a utopia that bypasses God and, in that connection, bypasses the flaw in humanity, the problem of human sin, is doomed to failure. And it's interesting, all these technologies for improvement, enhancement, they think that's all you've got to do. And the huge elephant in the room is the fact that human beings have got a fatal flaw. And the only solution to it, the only remedy for that disease uh, that is on offer that's credible is what Jesus came to do. He shall save his people from their sins. And I want to alert people to this, that this is credible because look at the history of all the utopias that ended up in dystopias. Why? Because none of those governments that tried to introduce these things was remotely concerned with ethics and the problem of human sin and responsibility to God. And therefore, it's a wake-up call, really, for all of us. 
I think is a great place to land this conversation. Morality is absolutely key to this, which we're already seeing. It's become a 21st century allegory of the garden narrative. Absolutely. A 21st century. It's more than an allegory because it's repeating it. The, the snake is very much alive uh, in deceiving people in thinking that they can become gods by disobeying God when the way to have eternal life is the exact opposite. It's by obeying God. I just want to encourage people, if you haven't had a chance to take a look at this, Dr. Lennox, incredible thinker, an incredible book, and I know that you'll enjoy it as we move into this future together. And we want to think clearly as Christians that have our focus on God. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lennox. It was great to have you on the AC Podcast. My pleasure. I enjoyed it immensely. Listeners, this was another episode of the AC Podcast, and we will see you next week with more things to think about.